Hello, friends. My name's Tammy Simon, and I'm the founder of Sounds True, and I want to welcome you to the Sounds True podcast, Insights at the Edge. I also want to take a moment to introduce you to Sounds True's new membership community and digital platform. It's called Sounds True One. Sounds True One features original, premium, transformational docu-series, community events, classes to start your day and relax in the evening, special weekly live shows, including a video version of Insights at the Edge with an after-show community question and answer session with featured guests. I hope you'll come join us, explore, come have fun with us, and connect with others. You can learn more at join.soundstrue.com. I also want to take a moment and introduce you to the Sounds True Foundation, our nonprofit that creates equitable access to transformational tools and teachings. You can learn more at soundstruefoundation.org. And in advance, thank you for your support. In this episode of Insights at the Edge, my guest is someone that I consider a soul friend, a hugely accomplished human being, Chip Conley. Let me tell you a little bit about Chip. Chip has disrupted the hospitality business, not once, but twice. As the founder of Joie de Vivre Hospitality, the second largest operator of boutique hotels in the United States, and then as Airbnb's head of global hospitality and strategy, where he was named the modern elder on the staff, someone equally wise as curious. In January of 2018, Chip co-founded the Modern Elder Academy, which is the world's first midlife wisdom school. They have one of their retreat centers in Baja, California, and then a new center opening this year in Santa Fe, New Mexico. Chip is a New York Times bestselling author of seven books and a new book. It's called Learning to Love Midlife, 12 Reasons Why Life Gets Better with Age. Chip, welcome. <laughs> oh, Tammy. <laughs> Thank you. Um, it's great to be here. I'm realizing that I'm actually staring out a window here in San Francisco where it's getting dark now. So so my uh, my image may just get darker over the course of the next hour. But um, other than that, I'm feeling relatively light. Yeah, even though I'm going through a, a lot of different uh, changes in my life right now. We're going to talk about that. We're going to talk about your new book, Learning to Love Midlife, and this capacity that you have. And you know, ever since I've known you, Chip, I've seen this in you. It's it's almost like this power of regeneration, power of renewal. You go through some kind of, I'll just call it in plain English, total system meltdown, or somebody might say- <laughs> Cluster, Clusterfuck. <laughs> yeah, you could call it that, like something yeah. like that, like, oh my God, huge destruction yeah. of your life form as it was. And then this is the miracle part, something new and brilliant and fabulous and unbelievable and generative and helpful mm. comes forward. And that's what I want to learn more about what you've come to know about that pattern in your life and the mm. capacity, this capacity mm. of regeneration. It's interesting you say that because 
my very first hotel um, as a boutique hotelier, <clears throat> I called this pay by the hour motel that I was turning into a rock and roll hotel that would now pay, you know, now you pay by the night. Um, that was called the Phoenix. Uh, and it's a, and it's a well-known rock and roll hotel here in San Francisco. And the Phoenix rises from its own ashes and I'm a Scorpio and Scorpio has sort of a life death kind of thing going on. So yeah, it's sort of woven into my, certainly into my history in this lifetime, but I have a feeling it's coming from past lives too. The, the fact that I, um, I have a tendency to have to manifest, you know, a transformation in my life. And often in the, for, in a transformation, you have to go through something dying. So, yes. I want to talk about, we'll just call it the Phoenix phenomenon. Yes. Uh, and I want to talk about it because I think a lot of times when we're in the death throes, even though we've heard about it, we think, well, that renewal, that rising again of the Phoenix, that might happen for somebody else. But, you know, at this moment, I don't think it's going to happen for me. Like yeah. I'm out. It's not happening for me. And I, I want to help uh, our listeners. And I want to learn more about how we activate that mm -hmm. renewal capacity yeah. when we can't see it. Yeah. Well, I think that... Um... One of the things I've learned in the last few years since taking a real fascination with midlife um, is the idea of the three stages of any transition you have in your life. And we call it the anatomy of a transition at our Modern Elder Academy, MEA. And this is based upon rites of passage, uh, initiation work, Joseph Campbell's work, uh, William Bridges, who wrote the book Transitions Work. So there's these three stages to a transition. If you know these three stages, it does give you some comfort <laughs> that there are, are coping mechanisms through the hardest parts. <clears throat> so the first stage of any transition that you're going through, uh, whether that's a divorce, changing your job, uh, you know, uh, deciding to live in a new place, going through a health diagnosis that's difficult, is you need to end something. Um, and you need to actually then ideally ritualize that, whether that's ritualizing that with other people or by yourself. Being able to say that period of my life has ended and I'm ready to move to the next stage. And, you know, for the for the caterpillar that's, you know, getting ready to the, you know, plump up as it does for the last two weeks before it actually spins its chrysalis. And then it goes into the chrysalis. And the chrysalis stage of life, what I like to now call the midlife chrysalis, not the midlife crisis, is that stage where it's messy middle. It's gooey. And in that goo, it can be, feel dark and solitary and confining. Um, and yet that's where the metamorphosis happens, the transformation happens. So what's the coping mechanism in that second stage of like letting go of something and then going in there? And the two things that you really need during that time are social support, no doubt. We need that for all the phases of any transition, but especially when you're in the messy middle, because in the messy middle, it liquefies. And so you can feel very awkward because of the fact that the 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 ground that you have tread on in the past is no longer there. Um, and so number one is social support helps you to you know have objectivity, but also have love. And then the other co coping mechanism for that second stage is um, seeing the through line of your life. 
being able to see the themes and to understand what's going to happen on the other side of this. Viktor Frankl famously wrote in Man's Search for Meaning about the people who did not make it through the concentration camp. And it was often those who had actually lost a hope and a sense of meaning from this terrible experience of being in a concentration camp. And so, um, and, you know, when the, the, the kids in Thailand, the soccer players who got stuck in the cave in the back of the cavern when the rains came up and it's been made into a movie, um, what people what the 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 people who saved them had to do was take a rope and take it through the cavern through all the water uh, that had come up because of the rain and it's like that rope that you can understand the through line of your life the thread that helps you to see where you are and where you might be going that's actually how they got the boys out of the cavern is having that rope we need that rope in our own life and then the third stage of any transition is the beginning, something new. So it's like, okay, the caterpillar becomes a chrysalis, then it becomes a butterfly. But when a butterfly actually emerges from the chrysalis, it is, it's got wet wings and it's often on the ground before it's flying. And so a growth mindset, a willingness to be a beginner, a willingness to look awkward, a willingness to laugh at ourselves because a growth mindset versus a fixed mindset means we're more focused on improving ourselves than proving ourselves. And we're not trying to win, we're trying to learn. So long story short is that's the framework I use <clears throat> in my own life. And it's the framework we choose to use at MEA when people come focusing on how do they navigate their midlife transitions. Now, you introduced this phrase in Learning to Love Midlife, the TQ, transitional yeah. IQ. Now, that's that's very clever. I mean, I guess we can have all kinds of intelligences. So you're, you're describing here uh, what the components are of having a high TQ. So the reason, and, and the reason we need a high TQ, Tammy, is because, um, you know, both of my grandparents, both of my grandfathers had the same job for 40 years. I mean, that's crazy that both of them had not the same job. They didn't have it. They had their own jobs, but they had their own jobs for 40 years. One lived in Denver, one lived in Southern California. Um, but if you look back at the 1960, the average person had in the course of their lifetime, three jobs. Today we have 12 or 13. Um, we also live in a world in which the world is changing faster and faster. So the idea that somehow, you know, we don't have to get smart or wise around mastering transitions is silly. We really need to understand how do you build your transitional intelligence in order to handle both you know, the changes you make in your life um, volitionally, you know, and then the ones that are thrust upon you. Uh, and so, I, you know, I, especially for people in midlife, because one of the challenges we have often as we go into our 40s and 50s and 60s, we get calcified a little bit and we get stuck. And we feel stuck based upon the mindset we have, our expectations of what we wanted in our lives. And we got to free ourselves from those things. Uh, Brene Brown talks about midlife being a time of unraveling. And I asked her like, Brene, that's not that. I don't want to unravel. That sounds like, you know, you're losing your mind. She said, Chip, have you ever looked in the dictionary under the word ravel? And something that's raveled is so tightly wound that you can't get it undone. And that's often how we feel in the middle of our lives. Um, and so to unravel means you create some spaciousness. Um, and in so doing, you create the opportunity for something, some, you know, some new growth to happen. Um, and you have to have some faith in this process too, because if you don't have the faith, then it's going to be really hard to go into that chrysalis in the first place. I want to talk a little bit about 
each of the three phases of transition. The first one, because, you know, okay, this, this is over. And, you know, what I, I realized recently in a transition that I'm going through is somebody said to me, you know, you haven't fully accepted, Tammy, that your reign in this capacity, R-E-I-G-N, your, is over. It's over, period. Put a, it's over, period. And I stared at that sentence for a long time and I was like, no, I haven't fully accepted that. No, I have not. And I thought, you know, it sounds a lot easier sometimes what to say something's over, but all of us, all, 100% of us isn't with that. And no. I'm, I'm wondering what you've learned about that. How do we get all of us to admit this XYZ thing? It's over, it's over. Well, it's, it's so, um... I'll tell you what I did when I when we took out my prostate, you know, six months, seven months ago. I had a prostate ritual, a prostate removal ritual, with a few friends, and um, partly because I was I was lamenting the fact that I won't go into the gory details of what a prostate does, but there were a lot of bodily functions I was not going to have anymore. Um, and so, rather than sort of be comatose to it. Instead, I had a dinner with some friends and we talked about our, you know, the value of our prostate in our lives. And that sounds ridiculous, but I think women do it when it comes to menopause more and more. I mean, this is not true five or 10 years ago as much as it is today. Um, when I joined Airbnb uh, as after having been 24 years the CEO of my own company, the first two or three months were agony for me because I was re reporting to Brian Chesky, the CEO, who was 31 and I was 52, but he was my mentee. I was mentoring him on being a CEO. And so for me, it was really hard to let go of being the person in charge of the company, even though it wasn't my company that I'd started. And, but it was really hard. So I had to have a ritual. I had to have a dinner again with a few friends to say like, okay, um, we, we did a little exercise where we we each of us wanted to let go of something. For me, it was letting go of having to be the CEO, having to be the sage on the stage and instead learning how to be the guide on the side. So what I did is I you know, wrote a bunch of things on a piece of paper. We talked about it and then I wrote on a piece of paper some of the qualities, character qualities that I needed to let go of if I was going to be successful at uh, Airbnb. Um, and then I also had to think about what I will replace those with. So for example, I am no longer the control addict. Um, I no longer am the person who's going to get all of the press around the company. Um, I no longer am going to be the one who is managing meetings. Um, and so as I started to get clear about the things that I used to do that I now was going to give up, and I put them on a piece of paper, and then each of us said, here's the things we're letting go of. And then we lit the pieces of paper on fire in, in a little you know, bowl. Um, and then I actually said, here's what I'm replacing it with. Uh, that process was very valuable because it allowed me, a ritual allows you to see the tr that transitional era, that, that period of time that is before and after. And so from that point forward, I can't say I was perfect at all those things, but I actually now had embraced them and I, I, I had spoken them out loud to other people. So um, you don't have to do the exact ritual I'm talking about. I We at MEA call this the great midlife edit, and we think you need to do it maybe once a year. It's better than resolutions because at the end of the year, like, let go, let go. The end of the year, let go of whatever it is that you're just ready to let go of because, you know, don't take that into the new year. 
Why do you call it the, the midlife edit? You're editing certain things out. Are you putting things in as well or? Yeah. So the great midlife edit is came from, you know, some of my scholarship with uh, studying Carl Jung, but also long, deep conversations with Richard Rohr. So Richard is an MEA alum, amazingly, at 78, he came to MEA, and he's on our faculty. He's teaching <clears throat> at our Santa Fe campus in July. Um, and both of them said that the first half of your life is about accumulating, and the second half of your life is about editing. And the key, one of the key talents that we need to learn in midlife is how to start letting go of the things that are no longer serving us, whether they're mindsets, identities, roles, um, you know, uh, a narrative, a story that isn't serving you anymore, to be able to let go of those and just move on gives you the space for new things to come in. And um, so I don't think just letting it go alone is enough. I think actually then you sort of say like, I'm going to replace it with such and such, and here's the habits I'm going to put in place to do that. But um, the reason that I think why it's important in midlife is because that's sort of the era where you actually feel overburdened. Um, and it's, you know, 40s, 50s, 60s, especially, you sort of like, you know, and 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 no one says a 25-year-old's downsizing. I mean, but you do say a 55-year-old or a 65-year-old's downsizing. And there's a lot of reasons for that. In your blog, The Wisdom Well, uh, you, you quote uh, Father Richard Rohr, and you wrote this piece that really got my attention about the dark night of the ego, not yeah. the dark night of the soul. And I'm bringing that forward here in terms of this uh, first phase of our transitional wisdom of being able to say, okay, these things are ending. And often, you know, what's ending is some ego clinging of some kind, yeah. some ego framework, some ego identification. Yeah. And I love this, the dark night of the ego, because so many times I've heard people say, you know, I'm going through a dark night of the soul. And I've had the thought, oh, no, actually, they're just going through a dark night of the ego. They're yeah. having to let go of some of their, you know, uh, big, cool accomplishment stuff or claims to fame or whatever things that looked good they're, they're basically you know in front of other people things aren't looking so great this isn't really so, you know what what saint john of the cross was talking about at a soul level uh bare naked it's something else and i was curious how you yeah. came up with that dark night of the ego i thought it was really brilliant chip uh, well thanks um i looked at my own life i looked at the times in my life where i felt things were the darkest and at times it was circumstantial. It at times it was, yeah, this shit's happening to happening to me. Um, but a lot of it was really my perspective on it. Um, and it had a lot to do with the things I was attached to, and especially my ego was attached to these things. You know, I I, I think that uh gosh, who was it? I can't remember the person's name right now. Um, but they said, like, you know, the key things that I am statements that define us up through midlife often is I am what I do. I am what I own. I am what others say about me and I am what I control. And these are, I am statements that are very egocentric. And I believe that what's really happening and Richard Rohr again speaks to this as well, is that there's a primary operating system change that's happening around midlife. You're going from the ego to the soul. And the way I look at it, uh, and so, but but no one gives us the you know the new operating instructions for the soul. 
Um, and so we're sort of attached to the ego. And, and the metaphor that I use now to think of this is that, <clears throat> you know, the it's like dancing in a sort of traditional hetero kind of way where the male is leading the dance. And through most of our first half of our life, that is the ego. And the, the soul is really sort of following uh, in heels and going backwards. And then it's around midlife that all of a sudden, something starts to stir inside of us. And we don't have words for it often. But having had 4,000 people from 47 countries come to MEA and me being there to observe and be an enlightened witness of them over the course of a week-long workshop, I have seen it over and over again. And what is going on is that the soul is starting to lead the dance. Um, and the ego is a little awkward. The ego is not used to being the one in heels and going backwards. But over time, if the ego can learn to laugh at itself and the soul can actually use the magic of its connection to something much bigger than itself, miraculous things start to happen. Now, that sounds very woo-woo, but I will say that the research on this on a social science basis in terms of the kinds of transformations people go through often in their 40s, 50s, and 60s around ego to soul, there's a lot of, there's a lot of data on it. Um, and research work on it. And I I just love it because it described my life. You know, I didn't have language for this. You know, I was going through a very difficult time, a dark night of the ego in my late 40s. Everything that could go wrong was going wrong. My long-term relationship was ending, not by my choice. My African-American foster son, um, who was an adult, was going to prison wrongfully. Um, my company was running out of money during the Great Recession. Um, I didn't want to be CEO of that company anymore after running it for 22 years. I lost five friends to suicide, all of them men, age 42 to 52. I had suicide ideation myself. And then, you know, I had a flatline experience at 47. I had a broken ankle and a, and a, um, you know, a bacterial infection in my leg. And I was on a strong antibiotic. And quite frankly, I had an allergic reaction to the antibiotic. Uh, and after giving a speech on stage, signing books, I slumped in my chair. And by the time the paramedics showed up to um, to put me on a gurney and take me to the hospital, that was the first of nine times in 90 minutes that my my heart stopped. So I had to get the paddles out and they electric paddled me back to life. Um, so do you have to actually die like I did and come back to life, an NDE, near-death experience, to be able to make a transition or a transformation in your life? Of course not. But that one shocked me back into life. It was the classic hotelier's wake-up call because I didn't want to be a hotelier anymore. And um, so one of the good things about having a um, an experience that puts you face-to-face -face with death is it radically shifts your thinking about how do you want to live your life? So death is an amazing organizing principle for life. And, um, you know, there's a, a bunch of work by Laura Carstensen from the Stanford Center on Longevity that has shown that when people have a shorter amount of time left to live, surprisingly, on average, they feel happier. And part of the reason they feel happier is because they're more in the moment and they're not focused on the future. Um, and, you know, future allows us to mind, mind trip. And so... Uh, for me, I all of a sudden went from like, oh, what future, 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 like, oh, no, I'm in this moment. Every single day matters to me. And it was in that kind of thinking that allowed me to wrestle control 
I don't want to say wrestle, but to surrender control from my ego to the soul, because I, I, I really felt like my ego had been not dancing very well, but <laughs> not leading very well. And, um, yeah, does my ego still want to take over at times? Of course. You know, I have a book coming out on Tuesday and I, you know, I want to, you know, have it do really well and et cetera. I mean, those things still come up, but I can laugh at it now. I'm, 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 I, I don't, I don't allow myself to get hijacked uh, by my ego like I used to, or not as much, not as much. It still happens, but not as right. much. A, cu a couple questions here. Uh, when I imagine that uh, figure dancing backwards in high heels, did you ever do that, saying, Tammy? I wanted to uh, understand. Well, I, I, I've worn high heels like on Halloween, like once or something, you know, and I, ki I kicked them off. You know, I would say metaphorically right here with you i'm i am definitely dancing backwards in high heels and my question is what happens when when it comes up and you go i'm not sure everything's going to be okay actually i'm not sure it's going to be okay in fact uh you know i think i i could fall i can't dance very well like this this i'm not sure it's going to be okay well i think the, then the question is like what's the biggest fear like you know what what are the top three fears that are you know, are you going to die? Um, are you going to lose your reputation? Are you going to have a financial meltdown? Are you going to lose a best friend? You know, I think, you know, one of the things I've learned, I wrote a book called Emotional Equations. And one of the key things around anxiety is that it, it really comes from what we don't know and what we can't control. And so, you know, bringing to the forefront what it is that we have a fear is really an important piece of like settling the anxiety. So, yeah, I guess what I would say is, so let me use an example. Um, so MEA has a campus in Baja. We are opening a campus in Santa Fe, as you mentioned, a 2,600-acre regenerative horse ranch um, with two retreat centers on it. We have one retreat center down in Baja. Now we're going to have two um, in on this ranch. And then we have another retreat center in the town of Santa Fe, an old Catholic retreat center and seminary next to St. John's College. So we're we're growing big time. And Thank God there's a lot of demand for midlife wisdom schools today. Um, and we're the first one, but like, this is a thing. This is a thing. But Tammy, I will tell you, like, when I had my prostate taken out in June and I and found out, okay, you know, I have to stay on this hormone depletion therapy. So I have 1% of my normal testosterone and I'm going to have to do seven and a half weeks of radiation right before the book comes out, right before the ranch opens. I was in the ego freakout mode of like, oh my God, I'm going to have the last career I ever have in my life. I'm going to be a public failure and I'm going to lose all my money and, and, and et cetera. And yeah, I, I gave it, I gave the ego some time to reflect on that because it's like, okay, what, what are you fearful about? And then I really stepped in and just said like, so how can I reach out for help? My archetype that defines me is my hero, my hero. And the hero has to go out and fucking do it by themselves. And that rugged individualist that was sort of, you know, drummed into me by my father, my Marine captain father. And, and I came to realize like, my God, I don't have to do this by myself. I can be a little bit more vulnerable in my blog about what I'm going through. I can be more open about saying, I need your help. Um, and I can build relationships with people who are going to step up. Um, and they just need a little bit of help on the front end. 
And I feel so much better now. My gosh, I, I was really in a dark place six months ago. But if I look back on it, it was really very much ego identified. And it was identified based upon an archetype of how I show up in the world. And I felt like I didn't have the energy to show up in the way I have historically shown up. So that was the hero is something that I've had to dose down, not get rid of. I mean, it's like I, I can be the hero occasionally, but I don't have to have that be my primary archetype. I can be the gesture occasionally, um, et cetera. I think you're making such a good point because I think picking up uh, the phone and calling people that we know love us, they love us for who we are, but right. we're going to tell them, you know, I know you think I'm hugely successful in this way or that way, but the truth is this thing, it might not be working as well as you know, yeah. I thought it was working and you guys all thought it was working. Yeah. And I mean, I don't know, maybe that could be for some people about their relationship or something oh, yeah. in their career or something about their money or something like that. And now we're actually sharing with our friends, you know, the real struggle. And it's like, it's okay for you to know me as this person who's really struggling, even though you thought so highly about this. Yes. Aspect. And I'm willing to sacrifice that for oh, you yeah. to know me. Yeah, and it's beautiful because you open the door for them to be vulnerable too. And I've done, I've been doing a little bit of work with Dick Schwartz, who I know works with you, and 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 his parts work IFS. He's actually on faculty. He'll he'll be teaching um, in Santa Fe this spring. Um, and I, I came to see that I have these, I have many parts, but the three that I'll just talk about for a second are: I have Mister Ambition, and Mister Ambition shows up because that's really when I came out as a gay man at 22, the number one thing my dad worried about other than me getting AIDS, which I came out in 1983 at a time was like, wow, not a good, not good timing. Um, was that I would want to be a hairdresser or a flower designer. I mean, like I was the oldest, uh, child in the family. I was the only son and I'm Stephen Townsend Conley Jr. Chip off the old block. So my dad's biggest worry was that I was going to be ambitious. So there's a Partly, there's a part of me that's just like, the part of me is the ambitious one. And I get a lot of love and support for that. I am an am, I am a, a, a admiration addict because I want you to love me for my ambition. Then I have the creative one the part, the creative part. And creativity really um, is something that I was very, um, not I was charmed by a, my creativity when I was young. Um, and I was very much a loner and a, a bit of a shy introvert. And I really appreciated that. And yet then as I moved into adolescence, I got this feeling like, okay, that creative thing, like may, maybe people think I'm gay if I, they see me as an artist. And so I got to be careful with that creative thing. But as I came out at 22 and then got into boutique hotels and did all this, all this and started right and oh my God, those two together, <laughs> ambition and creativity, like, whoa, that's that's a potent combination. But it can be a potent combination still full of ego. And then there's this other part, and I call this other part the little one. And the little one is just that little boy that was, didn't feel particular, I felt timid, didn't feel particularly lovable. Um, and... That little one has, quite frankly, I mean, has been neglected my whole adult life. And so learning how to take these three, Mr. Ambition, Creativity, and the little one, and give each one of them a voice, and to see that maybe there's some collaborations that can go on amongst them, 
Um, and so for me, in my process of the last year, freaking out about what was on my plate at the same time I was dealing with a, a major health issue, stage three cancer, I had to let the little one speak more. And so the little one ended up speaking through me in my vulnerable wisdom well daily blog posts. And I've got one tomorrow. For, I mean, for people who are listening, I you know go to MEA website or uh, meawisdom.com or chipconley.com, sign up to subscribe, it's free. And take a look at my, my blog post tomorrow because tomorrow's my last day of radiation. Um, so the blog post tomorrow is, you know, is cancer a blessing or a curse? Um, and so I, I mean, it's freaking my parents out who are 86 and they're like, Chip, you are way too much information. But I guess there's a part of me that feels like, you know, if I had at in my childhood been able to express myself in this way, the little one had a voice. You know, I grew up in a family where, you know, children are seen but not heard. And that was sort of how I lived my life until, you know, I, I became much more um, uh, extroverted in my teen years. I'm sorry, that was long, but. No, I'm, 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 first of all, I'm very uh, happy to name these parts of you that, of course, mm -hmm. from the outside, I could see them. And from the outside, even our friends and everyone who we think we're suddenly yeah. being very confessional with, they know what's going on. I know, you know what exactly. I mean? Like we think we're being so, <laughs> you know, vulnerable to call and share, you know, and say, I, I really need social support right now whatever, for whatever's going on. People, people know it anyway. They can sort of smell yeah. it, which is. Uh, and what are your parts? What are your parts? Well, 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 okay. We're not going there right now. Oh, but, come. Okay, okay. Uh, well, well, I mean, you know, to be honest, I'm I'm sorting it out and I'm in a huge uh, transition. And I think it would uh, just take too long in our conversation okay. for me. And it's not as tidy as the way um, you uh, presented it. But I'm definitely working through feeling good when I'm in control. And how do I feel good when I'm not in control, which is why I brought forward the high heeled uh, female figure dancing backwards. Yes, yes. And you said, well, you have to admit to yourself what it is you're afraid of. Are you afraid of uh, not being alive, I think was the first one you used of dying. And I thought this is one of the things I want to learn more about from Chip, yeah. because you had your flatline experience, which you shared mm. with us, and now you're going through mm. treatment for stage three cancer, for a, yep. a, a difficult kind of uh, cancer diagnosis. And I'm curious how you're finding your way to dance backwards in high heels with your current health situation. So, you know, I'll take it. I don't have the blog post for tomorrow right up in front of me, but if I see cancer as a teacher, and I don't have to be the gladiator, the hero who's going to kill cancer, but instead cancer is in my life for a reason. And the reason it's in my life is because I'm supposed to learn something from this experience. You know, our, our uh, I'm, you know, we, we run a wisdom school. So I'm a big believer in, in understanding what wisdom is. And I believe that wisdom is our painful life lessons that are the raw material for our future wisdom. So what I look at with cancer is being out of control is how am I supposed to learn from cancer? What are the key lessons? And some of my lessons have been things like um, I need, I, I, I'm a pretty multidimensional person in terms of my interests. I'm not just like Mr. Workaholic. I, I work workaholic hours though, and I have a calling, but 
I want to I, I want to reinvest in the multidimensionality of my life. Um, and so that's one lesson. Another lesson was like, you know, my body is a rental vehicle, but the, and and over time, I care more about the inside of that rental vehicle than the outside. But I am in harmony with my body. My body's my best friend. And it is the rental vehicle that's going to take me all the way to my death. And so how am I treating my body a little bit better? Of course, that's a natural thing that would come from a cancer diagnosis. Another one is learning how to ask for help. And so cancer, you know, it's interesting that Lloyd Austin, the Secretary of Defense, you know, you know, had a prostate cancer diagnosis, didn't tell his bosses, didn't, you know, I'm not, I'm, this is not political, this is just sort of interesting socially. And he he didn't, not, not only did he not tell his bosses, but then he had this, you know, uh, he had some side effects of the of the radical prostatectomy that let, led to him being in intensive care in the hospital. And he wasn't asking for help. And he might, and, and <clears throat> given the position he's in, maybe he didn't feel comfortable being public about it. But man, our shame that we have and, 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 things around sexuality and around whether it's breast cancer or prostate cancer or ovarian cancer or whatever it is, these are in some cases cancers that strike at the root of our gender relationship. And so, um, you know, when you have your prostate taken out, oh my God, there's all kinds of things that, you know, the side effects of that. And I, all I can say is for myself to be able to be open to all of the emotions that I'm going to feel of having only 1% of my testosterone that I used to have, that can come back once I stop the ADT, but to not have some of the functioning that I used to have. Yeah. You know, these are things that I've had to just say, how am I supposed to transition my romantic life? How am I supposed to trend? Unfortunately, I'm in a long-term relationship, but how am I supposed to transition my perspective on masculinity. Um, and it's been beautiful. And so for me, cancer has been a teacher. I am ready to graduate <laughs> from this school. Yeah. Uh, but let, it's, let me ask one one clarifying question. When you yeah. said, you know, my body is my best friend, because I can imagine that when people have any kind of mm. disease, you know, diagnosis of of something like that, there's a feeling that your body has quote unquote betrayed you not it's my best friend so or how- you or you have betrayed your body that is where i was you, you you know tim you're so good at this that's exactly where i was my diagnosis got me to a place of saying my body's betraying me or then oh i've betrayed my body as if they are you know two different you know they're two different entities and so to get to a place where i say like i am at one with my body and my body and i have a, a a beautiful friendship relationships in such ways that i am trying to be thoughtful about how i treat my body whether that's you know drinking far less or at times not at all um whether that's the kind of food i put in my body whether that's the you know having a regimen of acupuncture and massage and and you know, I don't run as much as I used to, but I, I mean, I, I'm just a, a really avid walker. And so I, and swimming and just, there's all of that. But the one thing I want to say sort of as an adjunct to this is we are, we are living in a culture right now that has the tech bros from Silicon Valley 
all focused on biohacking as if somehow our body, if we if we just do the right things to it like a machine, it will live forever. And I, the thing that's so fascinating about this, Tammy, is that the number one variable for living a longer, happier, healthier life based upon Blue Zones research, Harvard, Stanford, et cetera, is how invested are you in your social relationships in your 40s, 50s, and 60s? The people who are living late to 80s, 90s, and 100s are the ones who actually invested in their social relationships in their midlife. And so, you know, illness starts with the letter I and wellness starts with the letter we and letters we. And, and I deeply believe that that's another part of the healing process for me is that sense of social wellness and, and allowing myself to be vulnerable enough and out of control to friends who are there to, to be my safety net. And that's not something easy for me to do. That is for sure. Um, I am, I'm there for other people in their way when they're going through their stuff. But it, when it's for me, I like want to go into my little chrysalis in my little cocoon and hide away. And I'm doing, I've done that this time too. Like, you know, I, I'm, but I am just trying to break new ground and be that much more open to just saying, will you just come and take a nap with me? Which is what I did yesterday with someone because I didn't really want to talk to them, but I actually wanted to just be in, in bed taking a nap with someone. So. Beautiful. I love that, Chip. Now, you you shared with me these uh, three phases of a transition, and mm -hmm. we talked about ending, and now we're in the goo, for me, in the conversation, the gooey part. Mm -hmm. And I think you've done a terrific job, really, of explaining the importance and the research behind social support. And then you said the second factor in getting through the goo is seeing the through line in our life. And you've shared a little bit about by talking about your own parts, mm -hmm. finding the through line. And then you asked me and I was a little bit like, uh, you know, cause I'm, I'm finding the through line, Chip, I'm finding it. What kinds of questions help people when they're in the goo, find the through lines in their life? So uh, let me tell a story first, and then uh, we can maybe go to some questions around that. Um, so trying to learn how to let go of the way you've done things in the past, um, if you're just letting go of it, but not actually replacing it with something else is, is like the classic person who's retiring from something, but not to something. And the problem for people who retire from something and not to something is they end up couch potatoes watching on average in the US 47 hours of TV a week. So that process of being in transition is is got to be yes letting go but also welcoming into in in and what I was able to do when I was at Airbnb when I knew that I couldn't be the CEO there I didn't want to be the CEO and I didn't want to be competing with Brian for that role that's what he was doing is when I could finally see the through line of like okay oh my you've called me the modern elder here that was a gift someone who's as curious as they are wise. My, my role here is to learn how to be a master mentor and to be a mentor, a mentor and an intern, not just the, you know, the person with the, you know, the Yoda or Dumbledore or whomever, but instead be the person who's learning as much as he or she is teaching and wisdom dispenser and seeker and 
So when I could actually get to that place of seeing the alchemy of curiosity and wisdom, that lit me up. Because all of a sudden, my role was not to have my photo on the cover of Fortune magazine. My role was to make sure that these three founders had their photo on that magazine. And that when they do their IPO and are ringing the bell, that they're very successful. And Brian, over three years after the IPO went you know, went live and during a very difficult time with you know, Brian Jeske, that youngster who went to Rhode Island School of Design and had no business background at all, he's still running one of the largest travel public companies in the world. And he's the only Fortune 500 CEO who has a creative background. So, so I would just start by saying, how do we look for the thing that takes what we have learned in our lives and allows it to have an evolution into something new. Um, and and so, what are the questions we need to ask to to get there? Is you know what clearly what is the archetype or identity or role that has defined us that is no would not serve us moving forward? And we have to get rid of that. We've talked about that, but then it's actually literally doing a bit of a, a deeper dive of like, what is it that's your gift? You know, the, the purpose of life is to find your gift, discover your gift. The work of life is to develop it. And the meaning of life is to give it away. So one of the exercises we do at MEA um, uh, is to help people try to find their essence. Like what's at the gift? And it starts from something that Peter Drucker did for companies. He used to say that the most important question any organizational leader can ask is what business are we in? And ask it five times in a row <clears throat> with the person who's answering not being able to answer the same way twice. So we do that same exercise <clears throat> for people. And we say, what master your gift can you or do you offer? And, and you can choose. Like if you want to say, ah, I like the word mastery. So what mastery can you offer would be perspective. And do you offer would be like right now. So if you could be asked that same question five times, what mastery can you offer, Tammy? And then you would answer it. And I would say to you, thank you. Take a few deep breaths, close your eyes, open the channel, be the conduit, not the conduit. Let, let something be the conduit come through you. Let me ask you again, Tammy, what mastery can you offer? And I can't say that by the fifth time you answer that question, you have the light bulb over your head. Um, but I actually, this exercise, the third time I ever did this exercise, I got to the fifth one saying, I'm a social alchemist. And like, whoa, that was it. I'm a mixologist of people. I love mixing people. That's what, you know, that's what I, that's what MEA is all about is how do you create the collective effervescence of a cohort coming together? And it's a potent cocktail. And so I, it has helped me as a filter to understand how I'm living my life moving forward. So trying to understand your gift getting it down to some language that allows you to see that. And then to sort of say, that's the flashlight that is going to help you out of this messy middle, this dark place. Um, because actually what is often the case, and this may be the case for you, is you're clinging to something that has worked for you all the way up to now, but it may not work for you moving forward. And it's partly because you're not using your imagination. And in the chrysalis, the literal biology of it is there are these imaginal cells that, that were in the caterpillar that are also in the butterfly. 
And so it's the imaginal cells, imagination in the chrysalis, imagination in midlife that allows you to say like, ah, okay, I'm letting go of that. And now I'm going to go to this. And it's not easy, but that's why the social support is helpful in that era. Okay, let me just be dark for a moment. Uh, yeah, you know, people fine. use people use the butterfly metaphor all the time. Yeah. And at one point I heard, you know, not all of the caterpillars who turn into goo make it out as butterflies. <laughs> yes. Some goo just dissolves into goo and stays goo, period. Yes. And you know, that's a that's a dark thing to learn uh, when you're studying a metaphor like this. I liked it better when I didn't understand it that well. And I thought every single caterpillar comes out as a butterfly. No. It's like, no, some some don't make it. That's true. So there's no guarantees in life. Uh, you know, the metaphor is helpful as a way, especially when you're in the most challenging place, which is like moving from the ending to the middle uh, going from caterpillar to chrysalis, that there can be hope. But yeah, yeah, not all those people in the concentration camp that Viktor Frankl was hanging out with made it to the other side, you know. And again, those who did, from Frankl's perspective, based upon what he wrote in in Man's Search for Meaning, were those who were able to find the through line, the hope, and the meaning. So um, despair equals suffering minus meaning. So suffering is an ever-present part of our life, especially in you know no, no, first noble truth of Buddhism. And despair and meaning are sort of inversely proportional, and uh, or not inver yeah inversely proportional exactly. So I, I'm not trying to be a Pollyanna here. Um, there there are going to be butterflies that never make it out of the chrysalis. There are going to be butterflies that end up on the floor and get squished. <laughs> Um, so, so don't use the metaphor if it doesn't work for you. At the same time, I do believe the three stages make sense. And for a lot of people who get into that dark place and get stuck in the goo, they are in that second stage. No. When I asked you about TQ, you said, yeah, this is something we're all going to have to get good at because of the time that we're living in. And in your new book, Learning to Love Midlife, you define midlife as a really large <laughs> age range. I mean, I think at one point it was between 35 and 75. Yeah. Potentially, you could be in the midlife passage. And I thought that's such a long period yeah. of time. It, it almost makes it seem like, what? That's like, you know. When I was researching the book, I spoke. I spent a lot of time talking to academics. First of all, midlife as a life stage is so under-researched. I mean, there's just been not a lot of research on it. There's a lot of research at later life, a lot of research for early life and adolescence, and now emerging adulthood from 18 to 30, but not a ton around midlife. So talking to the scholars around midlife, what people said to me sort of over and over again was, if we are living in an era where people are living longer. And let's be clear, in the US, longevity is in a really big rut right now. We have the same longevity today that we had in 1996. That is not true in the rest of the world. We are pretty much the only country that has been that is at the same level as 1996. The rest of the world is flourishing in terms of its longevity. So if we are living longer um, on average globally, uh, and there, the percentage of people who are centenarians in the world is growing fast. Um, you know, it is possible that midlife lasts maybe as long as 75, because a lot of people are going to be full career into their mid seventies. And, you know, the, and the 35 is sort of a function of the fact that there's a 
growing number of people who are at who are fearful of for their jobs and being obsolescent because of digital intelligence and technology, but now especially artificial intelligence. So 35 to 75 is a long time, but let me break it up into three um, pieces of midlife. Um, and again, I worked with academics on this. So uh, Stanford, Harvard, UC Berkeley, and Yale. 35 to 50 is sort of early midlife. Mid, early midlife. And what's notable about this early midlife period is it's a time when you feel a bit overwhelmed. Um, you are in the early stages of maybe feeling some disappointment. You may feel like you are stuck on a treadmill that was not your treadmill. <laughs> it was your parents' treadmill. Um, and you are afflicted by successism, thinking success will make you happy. Um, and so 35 to 50 is actually a really rough period. The U-curve of happiness research, social science research, shows that that's really the least happy time for adults. And then 50 to 60 is core midlife, in my opinion. Core midlife means like you have started to do a major transition. Um, and whether that transition is spiritual or it's cult cultural or, or it's emotional or it's, you know, career-wise vocational, um, physical for sure. I mean, you know, it, it, menopause for women, you know, often is 45 to 55, but it can be all over that and perimenopause. All of that is, you know, happening during this era. And so core midlife is a period where you start to realize from 50 to 60 that you're in the afternoon of your life, as uh, Carl Jung would say. And Carl Jung said, you know, you can't live the afternoon of your, of your life based upon the rules of the morning. And the rules of the morning is, you know, maybe early midlife and uh, earlier. And then later midlife is, in my opinion, is 60 to 75, 60 to 75. And I'm 63. And so I am in that period. And what's going on in later midlife is you're starting to realize, you know, you you're preparing for your senior years. And who knows what we call those senior years? I'm going to call them senior years now because I don't have a better name for them. But like from 75 on, um, there is some evidence that, you know, your happiness starts to plateau and maybe in your 80s, it starts to decline. Now, if you talk to the U-curve of happiness researchers, they disagree with me, but I see my own parents and I know that they were at peak level of happiness in their late 70s. And their 80s have been tough because you start being more infirmed and they're, and things start to break down more. And um, But if you listen to Laura Carstensen at Stanford, she'll tell you like, hey, again, the shorter amount of time you have left in your life, the more you're in that moment and you're you're not focused on the future. And so, you know, that's that's my perspective on midlife is that there's three stages of it and 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 there's sort of a a general prescription of each. But I'm also a believer in age fluidity. When you're age fluid, there's no like age or generation that really defines you. Um, you are all the ages you've ever been and ever will be. And I, I sort of like that too. So in terms of this notion of the midlife chrysalis from crisis to chrysalis, it's possible that you could have a, a midlife chrysalis going through that experience in each of the three phases, or you could have it multiple times yes. in the phases. Like, it's not like, I think previously, yeah. I thought like, oh, you go through your midlife crisis once. Yes. But after uh, reading your book, Learning to Love Midlife and reflecting on my own life, where I am now, et cetera, I thought, God, you know, how many of these chrysalis 
yeah. you know, experiences yeah. am I going to go through in my life? Obviously, several. Yeah, Bruce Feiler, who wrote the book Life is in the Transitions and, and is on our MEA faculty, it calls that the life quake when you are going through maybe multiple transitions at once, or you're going through a series of them. And one of them, you might be in the ending period, like a divorce. And another one, you might be in a beginning period where it's a new career or you're moved to a new place or you're an empty nester for the first time. Um, so the reality is you're each of these three stages are relevant to each kind of transition you're going through. And when you're going through multiple transitions at once, it's a little complicated. Um, but yes, I, I don't I don't think it's all linear. And I, I do love millennials and Gen Zers who have taught me that um the three stage three stages of life that the tyranny of the three stage life that I was sort of brought up with and you were too was like you, you learn to your 20 or 25, you earn to your 60 or 65, and then you adjourn or retire till you die. You know, no more of that because let's like take a sabbatical at age 40 if you can afford to. Um, let's go back and go to graduate school at 45. Let's, um, you know, become polyamorous in your marriage, um, you know, at 50. And and let's be open to the idea that, you know, you can be an evolutionary being that is constantly learning something new. The number one question we need to ask ourselves is what in our life are we a beginner at today? And that is the, a more important question to ask in midlife and beyond than it is even earlier in life. You write beautifully about how you started surfing. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I, a question that we need to ask ourselves is, you know, what is it that we know now or have done now that we wish we'd known or done 10 years ago? And then once you know that, what is it that I will regret if I don't learn it or do it now? And at 57, living in Mexico, living in Baja, starting out, starting the MEA, MEA campus there, you know, I didn't learn Spanish growing up. I learned French, uh, hence the name Joie de Vivre for my company. Um, and so as I'm thinking at 57, well, at 67, it's going to be harder to learn Spanish and harder to learn how to surf because I live on a, surf, on a beach that, where there's a surf break. Why don't I learn now? Because anticipated regret is a form of wisdom. And to be able to look out there and say at 67, 10 years from now, um, I will regret if I don't do this now. That's what got me off my butt and, and helped me to learn how to learn Spanish and start to learn Spanish and start to learn to surf. I'm not very good at either, but the fact that I started to try is a form of a growth mindset. Um, and we need that. We need curiosity and an openness to new experiences our whole life. Here's the last thing I want to talk about, Chip, because yeah. you mentioned how when we let go and we let die these ego investments and we're able to make it through the goo there are these new beginnings new birth we could call it our soul life this journey we've been talking mm -hmm. about from ego to soul and i'd love to know here here you are having gone through just recently uh this huge health travail that you're in the mm -hmm. middle of when you think of this is what my soul life is this mm. is what springs forth that is so genuine for me that's filled with newness what 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 comes up for you so what comes up for me is something you know i mentioned earlier eric or erickson and you know i am my business i am my my work and etc what he also said was you know as we turn to this age we are the I am statement is I am what survives me. 
that's what for a while my soul was saying to me i am what survives me what will survive me and but then i had a hard time with that on some level because i was like well you know i don't want my name on a building and i don't want you know i don't want my i don't want to feel like there's an ego attached to legacy for example so the thing that speaks to my soul today is i am how i serve i am how i serve and i'm not suggesting that has to be somebody else's i am statement but when I get get connected to those that language, I am how I serve. Um, it allows me to get to a place of humility and to a place of wanting to give back. And um, that's that's when I know my soul feels well adjusted. <laughs> like I I have opened up this channel that's supposed to come through me and my my role here in life is to serve and um when i how do you know if you're on the right path you feel the goosebumps um you you notice people out there that you might not have noticed in the past because they are a role model for you you hear something um you hear uh, or or you're attracted to something that wouldn't have been interesting to you in the past um and so, like for me, I you know I've been really fascinated by talking to nurses and teachers, you know, who they're in the serving profession, and and, and you know I'm a hospitality guy, so of course we were in the serving profession too. But uh, you know, I when someone's a teacher or a nurse, often it's a calling for them that came from something really from childhood, and I just love listening to teachers and nurses. If you'd asked me that 15 years ago, I would not have enjoyed that. I would have I would have asked the question, so how's that serving me? <laughs> how is it serving me to listen to teachers and nurses? And now I just realize that uh, they are my role models, you know. And so, so that's that's what. And I know my the goosebumps are the physical reaction to the sense like I'm on the right path. I've been speaking with Chip Conley, someone who carries. The medicine of the phoenix, the power of the phoenix, very mm. high TQ mm. intelligence to go through all kinds of transitions. He's the author of the new book, Learning to Love Midlife, 12 Reasons Why Life Gets Better with Age, the founder of the Modern Elder Academy. Chip, I always love being with you. Thank you, Tammy. I love you being with you. You make my heart too. swell. Thank you. Well, we learn from each other. You know, we have you. Have, you and I have such you know phenomenally similar stories in certain ways, and so I, I appreciate that we are on this learning journey together. And if you'd like to watch Insights at the Edge on video and participate in the after-show Q and A session with our guests, come join us on Sounds True One, a new membership community featuring award-winning original shows, live classes, community learning, guided meditations, and more with the leading wisdom teachers of our time. Use promo code PODCAST to get your first month free. You can learn more at join.soundstrue.com. Sounds true. Waking up the world.